Well, this morning we are in Romans chapter 5, and so if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn there, Romans chapter 5, and we're going to look at the latter part of this chapter, beginning in verse 12 down to verse 21, and if you're using the church Bible, you'll find that on page 942, and as usual, I know that you'll find it helpful to have a copy of Scripture open and reading along there with me as we come to the preaching of God's Word this morning. Let's go to him in prayer, and let's plead with him to bless the preaching of his Word to our souls. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you that you are a God who has redeemed us, that you have shown us everlasting mercy and kindness in Christ, and yet we know that there is so much more that we need. We know that we are so imperfect and so far from being in the presence of the Lord Jesus, and so Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word to the sanctification and salvation of our souls. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the glory of Christ, and the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom and understanding that you would make us to be rooted and grounded in Christ and established in the faith. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak a clear um, and efficacious word to our souls this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. And Paul is essentially bringing... Everything he said about justification to a a close. This is the end of many, many weeks we've been considering that glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone. And and Paul, in one last um, magnificent stroke, finishes off what he's been saying when he writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift By the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This ends the reading of God's word to us this morning. Well, I've had a question in my mind for several decades, and that question is, did the guy who wrote Cliff Notes mean to write them for high school students that didn't want to read the whole book, or did he mean for them to be a help to people who wanted to get a survey of a book before they read it? I tend to think... He had to know what was going to happen by running cliff notes, and and this is a bad example if you're in school. Do not follow what your pastor did, 
but I got every cliff note I could get on every book I was ever assigned, and I, I was so bad, I wanted the cliff notes on the cliff notes. I wanted somebody to give us cliff notes on the cliff notes, like two pages, tell me what it's about, I'll just regurgitate that in an essay, we'll be done. But I think there's something helpful about cliff notes, because God sort of gives us cliff notes in the Bible, and really the cliff note of the Bible is Romans 5, 12 through 21. If you wanted a summary of what is the Bible about, what is, what is the theology of Scripture, what is the overarching understanding of everything that God says from Genesis to Revelation, can somebody just sum it up for me? Paul says, I will sum it up for you. There was one man, Adam, who by one act of disobedience brought all death and sin and condemnation into the world. And there is a second Adam, there is one second and last Adam, who by one act of obedience brings all of the life and righteousness and redemption to those who are united to him. And Paul is essentially going to say in this passage what he has been saying all throughout about justification by faith alone. And notice that there in verse 18, he tells us he's still on the subject of justification. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And so Paul is saying, if you want to see the mechanics, if you want to know how this works, we've talked about Abraham, we've talked about David, we've gone to the Old Testament, we've talked about the role of the law, we've talked about how all men are under sin. He's given us all the parts, all the pieces. He's, he's put them all out for us. We've seen all the nuances and all the contours that, that all come together in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And Paul essentially, I think, is saying now, let me step back and let me show you how it works in the most simple way I can show you, and yet, in the most complex way. It's actually a frustrating passage. It's the most simple way Paul could explain it, and the most complex way Paul, Paul can explain it. And Paul says, one, 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 one. One atom, one act of disobedience leading to death. A second atom, one second atom, one act of obedience leading to life. That's how it works. That's why all men are justified in the same way. That's why Jews have no special place over Gentiles, why they have no special standing. That's why you uh, and your particular ethnicity has nothing over any other ethnicity. All men fell in the one man, Adam. And so this morning, I think to make this complex passage a little bit easier, we'll look at three things. First, we'll consider the two persons being spoken of here. Secondly, we'll consider the work of those two persons. And finally, the effect of the work of those two persons. We'll notice that Paul is connecting verse 12 to everything that's gone before. And, and you know, this is one of those passages where you wish you could get into Paul's mind. It's one of those passages where you wish you could be there and say, Paul, why, why are you transitioning the way you are? It's not easy to tell why Paul's moving. He's just talked about how, how great the love of God that, that brings about the justification of sinners is. He's told us that that love is everlasting and that if God loved us when we were enemies and he loved us not because of anything we did but because we were, when we were ungodly, but he sent his son to demonstrate that love and redeem us and lay his life down for us. If God has done that for you when you were an enemy, how much more will he not bring you to glory because that love will continue forever. He's not going to stop loving you. When you fail, when you fall, his love is unchanging. He loved you as an enemy. He's made you a friend. He's reconciled you to himself. His love endures forever. And now Paul goes back to the very beginning. And 
I think there are two things that maybe are helpful to us just by way of background. The first is that Paul's continuing on with this idea of much more. If you took a red pen and you went through Romans 5, 12 through 21, you would, you would find these more, much more, abounding. Um, Paul is heaping up superlatives. You know, high schoolers today heap up superlatives. This is like the best thing ever in the history of anything ever. And there's a sense, while we mock that and, and we joke about that, there's a sense where Paul theologically does that in this section. He is saying, this is how great, this is the best thing ever. This is so much better than anything else you could ever imagine. It's so much bigger than anything you can imagine. And notice that he ends by saying, in verse 20, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Now, Paul's going to explain the much more of the abounding grace of God and the abounding freeness of the grace of God by taking us back to the first man and showing us exactly what we are by nature and exactly what has happened. And what he does in this passage, very simply, he contrasts the two persons, the first Adam and the second Adam. Uh, One old Puritan, a very famous quote said, it's as if there are two giants on the earth, Adam and Christ, and every man, woman, and child is hung around the belt of one of those two. And on judgment day, they will be hung around the belt of one of those two, and they will be judged based on whether they are in Adam by nature or they are in Christ by grace and faith. And so Paul is going to give us the theology of the two Adams. He's going to tell us that the first Adam was a representative. This is something we have to get. Why am I born sinful? We're not tabula rasas. We're not blank slates. Um, I don't want to go into this here, but I think Paul may have, and theologians speculate, whether he has the death of infants in view. Why do babies die? Why will we die? Um, Paul doesn't say it's because of personal sin, though. Obviously, we are liable because of our personal sin. Paul says, in Adam, all die. And so Adam is a representative. We, we should get that as Americans. We may not like our representatives, but we are represented by them. Unlike America, we don't have a right to complain against God for ordering things that way. Conversely, we ought to get the principle of representation because I have never, ever met one person who has inherited money from their family who says, I don't want this money. That's not right. I shouldn't get to inherit this. So we get the principle of representation in life. We get the principle that there are representative structures in the world in which we live. And there is a theological representation in the historical Adam. Now, important thing to say here. Paul, the apostle, like Jesus before him, believed that Adam was a historical being. So that means either the apostle Paul and the God-man who made everything are wrong, or people who tell you you descended from pre-Adamic hominids are wrong. Because Paul will take a historical Adam and he will say there is a historical Adam and there is a historical second Adam. And that historical Adam is also a theological Adam. There is a theological principle at work in the historical Adam. Why are things the way they are in the world? Why is everyone corrupt? Why is the world the way it is? Why does chaos seem to reign at times? Why do nations war with each other? Why is there tumult? Why is even creation groaning under pains and, and things are not the way that they're supposed to be because our first father disobeyed. 
and everybody was represented in him. And he even had something of a solidarity with creation itself, that Adam's sin even affected creation because he came out of the ground that the Lord God cursed after he rebelled. And yet, we're told here very clearly that Adam was a representative. And then we're told, notice the key to this, to understanding all of this, is where we're told in verse 14, look at the end of verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Jesus is the anti-type. Adam was a type. God created Adam to be a representative figure because he wanted you to understand that the Redeemer would be a representative figure. And that what Adam lost in all of his sin and rebellion and what he brought into the world, Jesus would take on himself. And so we could be saved by representation. We fell by representation. We need to be saved by representation. We fell in the first Adam. We needed to be redeemed in the second Adam. That's a very basic overview of the two persons mentioned in this chapter. I want to say here, too, that... um, The idea of Christ as the second Adam is the very nerve of Paul's theology. It's the nerve of Paul's theology. If you want to understand everything else in Galatians and Hebrews and and Romans and Colossians and Ephesians, if you want to understand all those difficult things, you have to understand that they rest on what Paul says in Romans 5, 12 through 21. Paul will talk about... Jesus is the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15 at the end when he says, the first man was of the earth, the second man is the Lord from heaven, as are those who are of the earth, so also will those be who are like the man from heaven. And so we have an earthly, physical, and now sinful experience because of what Adam did. And yet God came from heaven and became the second Adam to raise us up and to give us resurrected spiritual bodies. And so Paul will everywhere see Adam Christ as structuring theology. Now, this is not a lecture. This is, ought to be good for your soul. Because as I think about these things, I think, praise God, there's another representative. Praise God that he did not leave me in Adam. Praise God that he is going to deliver me from this body of death through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Praise God that he so ordered things that his grace and his mercy would abound in Jesus Christ where all my sin and all my rebellion abounded. So far from being theoretical, this impacts you spiritually. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Secondly, Paul considers the work of these two men. Now, he sort of develops this, and if you... If you just gave this a cursory reading, you might think that Paul's just saying the same thing over and over and over again. If you just read through real quick, you might think, well, Paul's just saying, okay, fell in Adam, death in Adam, life in Christ, unrighteousness in Adam, righteousness in Christ. He's just saying the same thing over and over and over again. And there's a sense where he is. And there's another sense where what Paul's doing is he's breaking down in more detail how Adam represented us, what we lost in Adam, how we lost it in Adam, what that meant for our standing before God, what it means that the second Adam came, what his work entailed, what he did. In order, and this is very important for us, in order for us to understand who Jesus is, we have to understand who Adam was. In order for us to understand who Jesus is, we have to understand who Adam was. We'll notice that Paul begins talking about the work of Adam the first man, the one man, 
And he says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, the first thing that Paul's going to tell us is that when Adam disobeyed and he ate of the tree that God told him not to eat, that he brought sin into the world and he brought death into the world, and that death and that sin spread to every one of his descendants, and that his work brought the complete opposite of blessing and life. It brought cursing and death and misery and rebellion and sin and corruption and evil and everything that is contrary to God's holy purposes came into the world. And Paul is actually going to say, and this is not easy, but he's actually going to say that you and I sinned in Adam. Now, we didn't volitionally sin. We didn't exercise our wills in Adam. But we were in union with Adam, and when Adam disobeyed, we disobeyed in him. His disobedience was a representative disobedience. Now, you may say, I don't like that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change the fact that that's how things were ordered. If I can say that as kindly as I can, you may not like that. There's a part of it I don't like, but it's the way the world is. You know, King David said in his prayer of repentance, he had just finally repented of his adultery and murder, and and he said, out of the womb I came speaking lies. And David said, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David got what Paul's saying here long before Paul ever lived. David understood the nature of original sin. He understood that the guilt and the corruption of Adam's sin passed down to us because we sinned in him. And if you say... I would never have done what Adam has done. And the Apostle Paul were here, he would say, you would do it over and over and over and over and over again. And we would do what C.S. Lewis says about Eve. We would rather bow down to a vegetable than worship God. We would rather bow down to a vegetable, a piece of fruit over the infinitely glorious God And if Adam was put back in that position a thousand times, he would do it again because God ordained it to be so, and Adam exercised his will in doing so. And by nature, when we are left to the freedom of our will, we see what happens to mankind. And that sin came in, and that sin brought death. Now the question is, why did it have to bring death? Why couldn't it have just brought some turmoil? Why couldn't it have just brought a little bit of of, uh, discipline or chastisement? And I think there's something here for us to consider that Paul will say elsewhere, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And, and so in reality, the only thing that sin can be met with is death. It is the, the converse of what God promised. God promised life and blessing and disobedience against the God who promises life and blessing brings death and condemnation to anyone who rebels against the infinitely glorious God. And so It is the just penalty. It is the necessary penalty. It's not that God decided, well, I'll create this thing called death and we'll make it really terrifying to people because it is really terrifying and we'll make them not like it and not want to talk about it. But God essentially has to meet sin with death. Death is the converse of what man would have had by obedience. Had Adam obeyed, had he obeyed, passed the test, didn't succumb to the evil one in his temptation, had he not taken out his hand in rebellion against God, had he not said, I will be like God, I will decide the course of my life, I will decide 
what I'll do and what I won't do. Had he not done that and Adam obeyed, he would have gained life for himself and all those in him. And so notice that Paul develops this. He says in verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. I can, I can imagine Paul is thinking about the objections and one of his hearers is saying, well, wait a minute, Paul, you've told us about Abraham and you've told us that we're not justified by the law, but what about, and you've told us that the law makes sin exceedingly sinful and you've told us that, um, you've told us that, um, you've told us that the law was given so that the transgression might abound and that justification doesn't come from the law. So what about those that lived before the law, Paul? Were they not sinful? And you can see how Paul handles this. Notice he says, death reigned from Adam to Moses because there was law with Adam and there was law with Moses, but there was no external law in between. And, and notice this, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. What Paul is saying is that Adam's sin so affected everyone before the law that even before the law was given on Sinai, all men were condemned by the law that God was going to give on Sinai because he gave it to Adam. And even if they didn't sin in exactly the same way as Adam did, they sinned in Adam and fell with him. Now, that's helpful to me when I witness to people because 10 out of 10 people that you will witness to that are unbelievers will say, I'm a pretty good person. And when they say that, what they're saying is, I don't deserve hell because I'm not as bad as I could be. And what Paul essentially says is, let's just, let's just take that off the table for a second. It's not true, but let's just take it off the table for a second. And, and Paul essentially says, you sinned in Adam, you fell with Adam, you are corrupt by Adam. His work was a representative work. What happened to him, what he did, we did. That is hugely helpful to us when we come to consider the work of the second man. Because if that's true, if what Paul's saying is true, if we sinned in Adam and we disobeyed with him and the guilt and the condemnation are ours because of his work, which we'll come to in a minute, then that means that the work of the second Adam is done for us in representative union. Now notice what he says in verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man abounded to many. And notice what he says in verse 17. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who have received the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And notice that Paul highlights in verses 18 through 21, he highlights the obedience of of Jesus. Notice verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You know, I've always found this, this idea striking in the Bible, that when you start to really get the Adam-Christ typology, that Adam was a type of Christ, you step back and you start to see things that you never saw before. God says to Adam, you can have everything it's all yours, but this one tree, you cannot eat from it. You, you, you cannot eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says to the second Adam, my son, you can only take of the fruit of one tree. 
you can only take of the fruit of the cross. Peter will actually call the cross the tree. And so what Paul will do here, Paul is setting us up to understand that there is a contrast and there is an identification in the work of the two men. The contrast comes in that one disobeyed and one obeyed. The identification comes in that both are representatives of their people, commanded by God, and all men stand or fall in them. And notice that Paul says, by the one act of righteousness, verse 18, and then by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, I think it's important for us to understand that I don't think Paul just has the cross in view. He has the whole life of Christ in view. He is saying Jesus obeyed perfectly. We talked about this in Sunday school. It is impossible for me to understand what it would be like for a man to live in the same world that we're living in and never sin for 33 years. That is an absolute impossibility for you and and me to get our minds around. Never a sinful thought, never a sinful feeling, never a sinful word, never lusted, never got angry sinfully, was never proud, never worshiped other gods, never gave his time and energy to things that were not God, never uh, disobeyed his parents, ever. Perfect, absolute, continual obedience is what Jesus did. And consider just for a second the contrast. Adam does one thing, And the whole human race falls in him. Jesus does so much more in his work. He, in a sense, relives the life that you could never live, but that he requires you to live. It's very important. You ever wondered why the Bible highlights the different eras of Jesus' life, and yet we, we don't know so much that happened in between? We, we only know that he went to the temple every year, from birth till he was 12. It's all we know about him. We know he obeyed his parents perfectly. And then from 12 to 30, nothing. We know that he's keeping the law. We know that he's obeying God perfectly. And then we're told that he's a full-grown man. He begins his ministry, three years of ministry, and then he's nailed to a cross and he tastes death for all his people. From birth to death, Jesus lived the whole experience of men and women, so that no matter what age someone is, they can know that there has been a Redeemer who from birth to death has obeyed God, has experienced perfect holiness, who has established that righteousness, who obeyed his Father all the way to the end, even to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And so that what Paul is seeing in the one act of the cross is the totality of Jesus' life, perfect obedience. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He was without sin. He said of himself that there was no unrighteousness in me. The demons knew that he was holy. They said, you are the holy one of God. Pilate's wife knew that he was righteous. She said to her husband, have nothing to do with this just man. The thief on the cross said, he has done nothing wrong. And so the whole life of Christ, absolute perfect sinlessness, unbelievable to even think about the extent of what that means, and yet he did that for you. He did that in your place. He didn't just hang on the cross in your place. So a lot of people think very reductionistically about Jesus. He, well, yes, he was on the cross for me. No, he came, the incarnation was for you. The incarnation was for you. 
Every act of sinless obedience culminating in the act of him offering himself up to God without spot as a lamb without blemish was for you. His work was not for himself. Have you ever thought about that? It's an important thought. The Son of God did not have to come and become the God-man. He did not have to become Jesus. He only did that to save a people for himself. He came as the second Adam. I love the hymn by John Henry Newman. um, When all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. He is entering the battlefield. He was going up against sin and Satan and death and hell for you. Everything he did was as your representative so that as we understand that Adam was our representative, as we understand that Adam's sin is my sin, we will now start to get that if we're in Jesus Christ, everything about him is true of me. And I want to say this this morning. This is actually the hardest thing in the world to believe. I've read a number of Puritans recently who will make similar statements. And Jonathan Edwards actually just read a sermon where He actually said, believing that Jesus is a sufficient savior is the hardest thing in the world to believe. And yet Paul says, listen, understand how it works. Marvel in it. Know your place in Christ. Know that he's a perfect representative, that he did everything. He shouldered the burden for you. He carried the load for you. He was wounded for you. He was bruised for you. He took the shame and the reproach and the guilt and the power of our sin upon himself for us. He did all of it for us. Paul will actually capture the totality of the gospel in that little preposition for many places in in the epistles. It's arguably the most important word in the Bible, for. He does it for his people. And so Paul tells us, First, that there are these two persons. Secondly, he tells us about the work of these two persons. And finally, and this is really where Paul's going, the effect of the work of these two persons. Now, we've already touched on the fact that Adam brought sin and death and condemnation into the world. God told Adam that in the day that you eat, in Hebrew, literally it says, in dying you will die. He didn't just say you will die, but in dying you will die. And what Adam did was he brought spiritual death. He, he fell He became dead in sins and trespasses. That's what Paul says all of us are by nature, dead in sins and trespasses. What can a dead person do? Nothing. Dead. How do we know that Adam died? Because Adam had unbroken fellowship with God, but when he sinned, he hid himself behind the trees that God made. He knew God made the trees. Before the fall, he knew God was everywhere. He knew that God could see through every atom and molecule that he filled the heavens and the earth. And after he sinned, the first thing that Adam did was hid behind trees that God had made. And what that shows us is that spiritual death had come upon Adam, that Adam did not know God, and that Adam had warped views of God, and he didn't love God, and he didn't worship God. And Adam brought spiritual death. The Bible interestingly tells us Because someone could say, well, God said you're going to die, and he didn't die right then. Well, in Genesis 5, it says Adam died. So spiritual death, physical death, leading to condemnation and eternal death. So Adam brought all of that on us. That's what we are by nature. And and as we've said over past weeks, we have to get that. If we don't embrace the truth of that, we are doing ourselves 
a deplorable disservice in coming to a deeper understanding of the gospel, or we'll never come to an understanding of the gospel. The Bible says that you fell in Adam, that you are under all the, the corruption and guilt and shame of Adam's sin, that you are liable to judgment. And Paul will talk about condemnation spreading to all men and will set us up, as it were, for the effects of Christ's work. Well, you know, it's interesting, as much as I've already said, we've got to get Adam in order to get Christ. Paul really is only bringing Adam up to talk about Jesus. That's one of the glorious things about this passage. This passage is really about Jesus, not Adam. You've got to get Adam to get to Christ, but Paul wants us to get to the Lord Jesus and the effects. And notice what he says. Notice in verse 15, he calls it the free gift, and he says, if, if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. What Jesus Christ did for us on the cross is so great and so abounding in grace that Paul would say, if you could think about the greatness of everything Adam brought on us. So, hell. Let's, hell is the big thing. Who want, nobody wants to go to hell. Hell is eternal. Um, Charles Spurgeon, in one of his more sobering moments, said, imagine someone in hell, and after 10,000 years, though there's no time, saying, is it over? And a voice comes back, oh no, it hasn't even begun. Um, What Paul wants you to see is that that's what Jesus conquered. That's what Jesus did at the cross. He conquered an eternity in hell for you. He took hell on himself at the cross. By his one act of obedience, Jesus' work so superabounded anything that Adam could have done. This is marvelous. Paul's told us that Adam was a type of Christ, that Adam prepared us for Jesus as a representative. But now Paul is contrasting them. And he's saying, if Adam did this and all of this resulted from it, and all of that is so great and so awful, it's so awful. If Adam did this, Paul's saying, get this, the second Adam has done eternally more than that for you by his one act of obedience. Notice what he says. He says, In verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. So see, he wants you to think about the result of Adam's sin. And he's saying, but the free gift is not like the result of his one sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. We've already talked about that. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Now, if I could, I'll use an illustration that may not be helpful to you. It's helpful to me. If you ever saw the movie The Green Mile, and he would absorb the sickness into himself. All that sickness he would just absorb into himself. What Paul's saying is, Adam disobeyed, and sin and judgment and condemnation and chaos filled the earth. And Jesus comes, and by one act of obedience, he takes all the transgressions of all his people into himself. He takes all the transgression of his people to himself. Adam 
Did one sin, it resulted in many transgressions. Jesus takes those many transgressions, and in that one act of obedience, he justifies his people. Notice that what he says, he, he results, it results, many trespasses, the free gift following many trespasses, verse 16, brought justification. So one act, and he justifies all his people. And notice what Paul says now. He goes on, and he wants you to understand that there are implications. It's not just, oh, good, I'm, I'm forgiven. It's okay. No, Paul's going to say, here's, here's another contrast of the effect. Notice this, verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. So death reigned. Death reigns over men. Let me say that as emphatically. If you are afraid of death by nature, you're supposed to be. Death reigns. Death is not natural. Death is unnatural. Death came in because of Adam's sin. It leads to condemnation and judgment. That's what's behind death for the natural man. And death reigned until Christ came. And notice what Paul says. He says in verse 17, Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, you would expect Paul to say, and you've got to listen very carefully, you expect Paul to say, death reigned because of one man's disobedience, and life reigns because of the one man's obedience. But that's not what he says. He says, death reigned because of one man's disobedience, and we will reign. Notice what he says. He says, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know all that this means, but I know that it means one day we are going to be with the Lord Jesus. We are going to judge angels. We are going to judge the world. I don't understand all of that. First Corinthians 6, Paul clearly says that. Jesus says, to him who overcomes, I will give to him to sit on my throne with me, and I will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And so what Jesus does for your justification, if you are justified in Jesus, that means you are going to reign with him in life. You are going to reign with him. So that, and this is amazing. Jonathan Edwards says, it is the most remarkable thing in all of the universe that God meets eternal death with everlasting life. I want you to think about that. We deserve eternal death. We've merited that in Adam. It is inevitable for everybody who remains in Adam. And yet, God could have brought us back to zero, and he could have said, in some way, he could have devised a plan, brought us back to zero and said, well, let's try this again. But instead, God meets eternal death with eternal life, and he takes people under whom or under the power of death and the condemnation and the judgment that Adam's sin deserves, and he makes them reign with him by obeying for them and laying down his life for them. And he makes us kings and priests to our God. That's what God does. He takes us from worthless, filthy, rebellious, dead sinners on our way to hell, and he makes us reign with him in life. That's remarkable. And, and Paul, I, I think Paul so gets this in a way that we don't get this, that Paul is marveling, and, and he's about to crescendo here. He's about to bring it to this amazing climax. Let me just say this first. Sinclair Ferguson, I can't preach one sermon without quoting him, um, says this, and this is, this is striking. 
Jesus' righteousness is not just a perfect righteousness. It is a final, irreversible righteousness. Think about that. Adam's sin brought condemnation, but that condemnation was reversible because of the second Adam. But Jesus merits righteousness by his obedience and his death on the cross. And Ferguson says it's not just a final righteousness. It's not just a final righteousness, but it's a lasting righteousness. It's not just a perfect righteousness. It is a lasting righteousness that it'll never change. You will always be righteous if you're in Jesus. You will always live with him. It will never be overthrown. What the second Adam did is everlasting in its implications. As Adam's sin has lasting implications for those united to him, so Jesus' obedience has lasting implications for those united to him. And I want to say this. As we think about Adam bringing condemnation and death on the world and Jesus bringing justification and life, um, we want to get to where Paul goes in verse 20. Notice, now the law came to increase the trespass. So God gave the law so that you would know how sinful you are, to show the sinfulness of sin. And it increases the trespass. It makes it, magnifies it. It shows it really for what it is because we don't like to see what it is. And notice this, though, Paul says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Another favorite quote of mine, there's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. That's what Paul's saying here. There's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. That's the cliff note on the cliff note. There's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. And notice what Paul says as he ends this And he takes us up on the mountain and he shows us everything. He says, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, it's, It's almost, you almost wonder if, Paul could have just stopped writing. I know we, we need everything else Paul said. God inspired it. But this is, this is it. This is the end. It's, it's the cliff note ending to the Bible. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to say this this morning. When we talk about grace we need to make sure we understand what we're saying. We are not saying God's okay just dismissing sin. When Paul talks about grace, he is saying there's more grace in Jesus than sin in you, and Jesus did everything by that one act of obedience. It was so great that he, he did every single thing necessary. He, he provides everything for us. He gives us a perfect righteousness. He conquers Satan's sin and death. He conquers the condemnation that Adam brought into this world. He breaks the power of sin in the life of his people. He imputes his righteousness to all of his people. He brings his people to glory, and they're going to reign forever with him, all because of his one act of obedience. I want to encourage you this morning to be thinking about where you are. Are you an Adam? Or are you in Christ? I've often thought that would be an interesting evangelistic outreach. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? You're in one of the two. You're united to one of the two. You're either still represented by Adam or you're represented by Jesus. If you've never come to Jesus, 
Flee to him. He's the second Adam. He's done everything for you. He will receive you by faith. He will unite you to himself. He will show you that he has taken all the sin and all the condemnation on himself so that you will reign with him forever. And you don't do anything for that. It's a free gift. Paul says that constantly. Free gift, free gift, free gift. Grace, grace, grace. Abounding, abounding, abounding. More, more. Where sin abounded, grace did abound much more because of what Christ has done. If you're a believer, I want to encourage you to be meditating on your identity in Christ. Um, That's what God would have for you. Say, I am righteous in Jesus. God has constituted me righteous in Christ. I, I have not worked for a right standing, but Jesus Christ has done it all. He has paid it all. He has fulfilled it all. He is reigning now. I will reign with him. God wants you to say that if you're a believer. That's not going to lead to lawlessness. In fact, it's funny because we'll come next week to this. The, the natural question would be, well, if that's true, can we go on sinning? And Paul's going to break that down. But if you're a believer, know who you are in Christ. Know that you're represented by a better Adam, an infinitely better Adam who has lasting, lasting effects of what he did in that one act. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this passage. It is full and rich, and we are needy. And we need you to drive it home to us. We pray that you would help us to see the glories of the second Adam. Help us to... Marvel at the greatness of his work. Make us to know that there is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in us. Lord Jesus, we bless you that you have represented us, that you have taken all of our sin and shame on yourself. We pray these things in your name. Amen.